0: you're listening to the sound defense alliance podcast
1: there's this like immediate ear splitting impact of these growlers but there's also a lot of very severe impacts from the growlers are silent and their changes to the atmosphere that you know will be with us for for centuries these growlers contribute in a just spectacular way to the increase of that emergency
2: Welcome back to the Sound Defense Alliance podcast, where we are exploring the many sides of the naval jet noise issue in Northwest Washington. I'm Caitlin, here with my co-host Tara, and in this episode, we will be learning about two different issues that both relate to the horrendous pollution related to the naval bases and the Growler jet program. First up, Chris Greeson will share about his research and testimony for the state of Washington versus the Navy lawsuit on the carbon emissions of the Growler Jets.
0: In the second half of the episode, we'll learn about PFAS chemical water contamination on Whidbey Island by the Navy from Rick Abraham, who is an environmental advocate and consultant to law firms representing individuals and communities with toxic pollution problems, including those with contamination from PFAS at sites in five different states. We'll start with Chris and let him explain his work on the climate impacts of the Growler Jets.
1: With regards to the Growler, I helped develop testimony for the lawsuit of the state of Washington versus the U.S. Department of Navy. And my analysis focused on the climate impacts of the Growler expansion at Woodby Island Naval Base. And really, I came to the conclusion that I think they made some egregious errors that that underestimated the, the climate impacts by a factor of more than two there's a direct relationship between how much jet fuel a growler burns and the CO2 that, that they pump into the air. And this is like basic chemistry. So when jet fuel is burned, the carbon atoms combine with oxygen to form carbon dioxide, releasing a bunch of heat and one gallon of jet fuel when it's burned releases about 21 pounds of CO2 into the atmosphere. So what I found was, was really two key issues. First, that there was significant discrepancies in the fuel consumption calculations in the draft EIS versus records of actual fuel consumption of the Growler jets at Woodby Island Naval Base. And that that the EIS had underestimated this this fuel consumption by a, a factor of about two. And then second, I tried to dive into the likely reasons for the discrepancy. And what I found was that when it was calculating the, the carbon dioxide emissions, the EIS stopped counting emissions from the airplanes once the plane exceeded an altitude of 3000 feet. And it also didn't consider all of the different flight paths that were listed in the EIS. So to kind of make an analogy, it's like, it's like what I call a deception diet where you, you count the baked potato, but you don't count like the butter and the sour cream and the bacon bits that, that you put on it. The EIS had this no action alternative, which as is defined in NEPA, in the National Environmental Policy Act, would be the alternative that would happen if the Navy's growler program was continued to operate without changes. And so that would mean that they're not adding these 36 new jets with all the the new flights. And so my first thought was that if we know how much fuel was used by the Growlers in a recent year, this should be consistent with the amount of fuel that's specified in the no action alternative. And so I looked in the EIS and there's like 716 pages of the draft EIS volume one. And there's like another almost 800 pages in volume two. And there's no reference to the actual amount of fuel consumption of the Growlers in a previous year. So in December 2016, I submitted a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, to the Navy to get this information. And then three months later, I got an email that was forwarded to me from the fuels management officer at the Whidbey Island Naval Station that said, it was just one sentence, and it says, in fiscal year 2016, all of the EA-18G growlers at the Naval Air Station in Whidbey Island were issued... 20,253,643 gallons of jet fuel. And so this works out to about 137 million pounds of, of fuel for that year. And so I thought this was really interesting because the no action alternative in the EIS, which should basically be the same thing, had calculated 63 million pounds of jet fuel. So like, there's less than half of the amount that they had actually burned in the previous year. And so I, I was wondering, well, where, you know, where did that, where did that come from? And so I did kind of dove into their, into their methodology for figuring out in the EIS. And they really didn't do any favors and do the reader any favors in like, figuring out how they did it, because the there's these, sentences that are occasionally spread over about a hundred pages that describe the process and then all the data is in a separate volume. But there was a key footnote in like five point font that described what they were doing. And the approach that they were doing was to take fuel consumption information from the Navy's aircraft environment support office. And they have this environment support office has developed emissions factors for different flight operations. So as an example, these jets do what's called a a touch and go, where they they practice coming down, touching their wheels on the runway, and then lifting off again. And so each touch and go is assumed to use 706 pounds of fuel. And in the baseline scenario, they say, okay, we're going to do 4,724 of these touch and go operations. So if you multiply the 700 pounds of fuel per operation times the 4724 operations that would give you the total amount of fuel for that particular operations. And so they do that for all the different operations in the in, in each scenario. And the problem is, is that if you look at all of these operations that are listed and you compare it to the flight paths in the EIS, they're not the same. <laughs> and also they don't count any of the flying that happens above 3000 feet. And I think part of that is that this calculation methodology was originally for what's called criteria pollutants like nitrous oxides and sulfur dioxide and and so forth, which are more associated with urban air pollution. They apply it to CO2. And the the thing about CO2 is it really doesn't matter where in the atmosphere it's emitted. Like if it's at 3000 feet, if it's more than 3000 feet, it still contributes to, to global warming. And then as i said they didn't have these flight paths the longest flight path that they consider when they're doing these co2 calculations is like 10 miles but on the eis they have flight paths that are quite a bit more and then as a matter of kind of direct experience i'm routinely seeing the airplanes flying in places that are like not even listed on their flight paths they're choosing not to count a bunch of places that they're actually flying and in doing so they you know, they underestimate by by about 50% what the reality of the, of the fuel consumption is. One of the things that I found fascinating and, and satisfying was when this evidence was presented in this testimony to the chief United States magistrate judge, Richard Couture, he said in his summary report, the Navy appears to have used certain statistics, quote, much like a drunk used as a lamppost for support, not illumination. And he also wrote that, Despite a gargantuan administrative record covering nearly 200,000 pages of studies, reports, comments, and the like, the Navy selected methods of evaluating the data that supported its goal of increasing growler operations. The Navy did this at the expense of the public and the environment, turning a blind eye to data that would not support this intended result. I also just want to mention that I think that the flawed methodology that the Navy was using to calculate CO2 is probably not limited to this, not limited to Whidbey Island's Naval Air Station case. My my hunch is that this same kind of deception diet approach has been used with, you know, and failing to calibrate with actual fuel consumption has been used by other armed forces in, in their environmental impact assessment processes. So I would encourage listeners of this podcast, if they're facing similar kind of expansions in their communities to, to have a look at a close look at the emissions factors approach that, that the Navy has, has used and see if that is similar to, to what's being used in your, your jurisdiction.
2: We were curious about just how large these carbon emissions were, and Chris really put it into perspective for us with this comparison.
1: To emit as much CO2 as a growler emits in a single hour of flight, you would have to gather friends and drive 14 Priuses all the way from Seattle to New York City and back. It's a phenomenal amount of CO2.
2: Yikes, a single hour of growler flight. I have driven across the U.S. and back myself and the carbon emissions from that trip don't even begin to come close to the growler emissions. We interviewed Chris in late July of 2022 and fortunately the judge in the state of Washington and Corps versus the Navy case made a decision on August 2, 2022. He ruled that the Navy's environmental impact statement and their resultant record of decision violated the National Environmental Protection Act.
0: The ruling cited four ways that the Navy violated NEPA, and one of them was that they failed to disclose their assessment of greenhouse gas emissions from the increased jet operations. There's still a lot of work to be done to come to an agreement with the Navy about reducing the impacts of the Growler jets, but winning this lawsuit, thanks to the hard work of Chris and so many others, is such an important step. You can also get involved with this fight and the larger battle against climate change?
1: Well, I think it's important to support local organizations that have been working on the growler issue. So like the Sound Defense Alliance, the citizens of EB Reserve, Quiet Skies over San Juan County, and others that have been working on this issue. I think it's really important to reach out to elected officials. Representative Rick Larson is the chair of the Aviation Subcommittee in the House of Representatives. And he also represents Washington's 2nd District, which is the district that Woodby Island is in and, and also actually our county is in. I think it's really important to support and, and reelect our hardworking Attorney General, Bob Ferguson, who helped bring this lawsuit against the Navy on, on behalf of Washington State. It's important to write letters to the editor and, and write op-eds, make videos. I think this podcast is great in getting, getting the word out. I think it's important to run for office too. It's scary, but that's important. And on the climate issue, gosh, there's so many things, but I think starting by getting informed, whether it's reading summary reports from the IPCC, or um, there's a great 12-week course on climate that I just took called Terra.do, and there's great podcasts out there that have addressed climate issues. There's one I've been listening to called My Climate Journey that's been interesting.
2: Unfortunately, the carbon emissions of the growler jets are not the only form of pollution coming from the Navy on Whidbey Island. Next, you're going to hear from Rick Abraham about PFAS chemicals used by the Navy and how they are contaminating the water in the area. First, Rick will explain what PFAS are, why they are called forever chemicals, and where they are being found on Whidbey.
3: Well, it's a family of chemicals and there's actually many of them, probably thousands, they're human-made chemicals. I can give you some chemical names, but uh, I can't pronounce them and you won't remember them, but they don't exist in nature. And, you know, they're out in the environment. They're in the water, they're in the air. They, you probably have some in your blood because they've been in consumer products for years. Although uh, some of those levels are going down because some of those chemicals have been taken out of production. You know, they're still out there, but uh, they're called forever chemicals, because they don't break down. You get them in your body, they stay there, they build up. You drink them, you can have more in your body than what's in the water you're drinking. And we've seen that here on Woodby from the blood tests that we know about. They're nicknamed, and now EPA uses that term, forever chemicals. And they're a problem, and uh, they're a problem around the world. And some countries have banned their use in, in production, and, and it's a problem that was foreseeable and preventable, and now we're having to live with it. They're found in basically three three places that we we know of. Well, two places, one around the Navy base, Alt Field Old Oak Harbor, and uh, they're in the groundwater there on base. They've leaked offsite to communities nearby, and they're being discharged from the base all the way out to uh, Dugala Bay through, Farmlands, Clover Valley Creek, Lake, uh, those levels have been tested and are very high. So that's the Oak Harbor area. And then the other place is near Coopville, the outlying field, which is a touch-and-go landing strip from which they do touch-and-go jet practice, the growlers. That field is contaminated, the water under the field, and it has leaked off-site to nearby and not so nearby private wells. In fact, the whole town of Coopville's water system was contaminated by the PFAS leaking from the outlying field. The chemicals are in a firefighting foam, aqueous firefighting foam, AFFF. And it's what the Navy used and trained with in Oak Harbor and in Coopville. It contained the chemicals. And when it was sprayed on the ground, on the runway at Coopville, you know, neighbors nearby had seen it, the runway up and down covered white with this foam. Firefighters used it to train with, they would like, you know, use it in pits and practice putting out the fire with it. So it leaked down to the aquifer and once it gets in the aquifer, water in the aquifer moves and seeps outward different directions and ends up in people's wells. Now, in Oak Harbor, it was leaking from their uh, sewer system, I guess going through the groundwater, then somehow getting into the sewer system, and it was being discharged, like I said, through farmland to Duguala Bay. So that's surface waters, groundwater, surface water, and they've done soil testing at Oak Harbor. They have not done soil testing at the outlying field that I'm aware of.
0: Rick describes these chemicals as harmful, and they're probably already in our blood. So what are the negative impacts of PFOS on human health?
3: There's a long list. Okay. Development effects to fetuses during pregnancy or to breastfed infants, birth weight, accelerated puberty, skeletal variations, cancer, testicular and kidney, liver effects, Immune effects impair the ability to fight infections, especially among children. And that's one of the reasons that EPA lowered their health advisory level was because of the effects on children. Turns out they're not as protected by vaccines because of these. Interferes with the body's natural hormones, thyroid effects, increased cholesterol levels. And for young people, The uh, problems in the in the development of genitals, sexual problems, all that's on the Internet. Anyone can punch in and you'll find it. There's been numerous studies. Those studies have been put in the hands of our elected officials. The Navy's been aware for for a long time. Again, that information is not convenient to what the Navy wants to do or to the politicians and public officials who are afraid of the Navy or ha- have some sense of patriotism that you know, prevents them from confronting the Navy. I don't know, it doesn't make sense, but I'm talking about public officials, Democrats and Republicans, and it's not just the Navy, it's the Department of Defense and all the different branches of service. There are hundreds of military installations around the country that are known to have PFAS contamination under their properties and having it leaked Uh, Leaked off to uh, nearby communities. I grew up on military bases like the last, you know, I think three that I lived on, they all have PFAS contamination, as do the communities around them. The Navy likes to say it's an emerging chemical, an emerging problem. It isn't. You know, that's another buzzword. We've known about this problem for a long time. It's now starting to show up because people are complaining about it and looking for it. It's been out there a long time, and if something isn't done differently than what's being done, it's going to be with us forever.
2: There are so many harmful effects to human health, and these effects are only made worse when there are high levels of these chemicals found in the local water, like they have been found in several areas on Whidbey Island. What's worse is that the Navy has done what they can to dodge properly investigating and addressing this issue.
3: The Navy has known about the dangers of these phones for decades. That's well documented. And I say the Navy, I'll say the Department of Defense. But the way this all came to light was the EPA required kind of widespread testing around the country because it was becoming known that this was a, uh, you know, a problem. These chemicals were a problem and EPA just wanted to see how widespread the problem was, so large cities around the country and a select number of small municipalities that had drinking water systems were required to test for six of these PFASs. The Department of Defense was required to test, and they tested it and found it at its installations, Altfield and OLF. So it's not something they voluntarily jumped to the plate and did They were required to do this testing and the Department of Defense said, well, if we find it, then we got to tell the community and do something about it. The regulatory agencies, you know, well, I'll just say the County Health Department, the State Department of Health, Whidbey's Department of Health, the EPA, they deferred on the Navy. They relied on the Navy and this whole to investigate the extent of this problem in the community this was a matter of letting the polluter run the show. Our regulatory agencies from the city level all the way up, you know, they weren't asleep at the wheel. They were letting the polluter drive the car and they weren't even watching the road. So people were really kept in the dark. Now people were, you know, were concerned, those that knew about it. So it became the business of the Navy and our public officials If you think of the Navy as like a big corporation and what happens when it gets caught with a major pollution problem, they try and minimize the problem, downplay it, avoid bad publicity and try to avoid liability. If they find the contamination, they got to clean it up. You know, they're obligated to fix the problem. Here on Whidbey Island, the Navy is the big, powerful polluter. No one wanted to cross it. What we had here was more of a cover-up than any kind of cleanup and any kind of accountability to the public about the extent of the investigation, extent of the problem. As an example of that, and one reason we're where we're at, when the Navy decided to go out in the community and see how far this contamination had spread, they came up with a plan to investigate the problem. The plan was kept from the public. Public asked for it. I asked for it. The county would not who had a copy of the plan wouldn't give it up, EPA wouldn't give it up, all because the Navy said, don't do that. You know, It's still in the planning stage. And it, since it's not a complete plan legally, we don't have to give it. Well, in fact, they were already testing the water when they implemented this plan. When they tested in the community, they didn't test for all the chemicals that they knew to be in the groundwater, all the chemicals that were found under the Navy property. They only tested for a handful of them, and they tested at levels far higher than what the levels they used on their own property, the result being they didn't find some of the chemicals at lower levels. So that was the foundation of the the investigation, the foundation upon which a bigger house could not be built, because after that, all subsequent investigations, the so-called step-out areas, where they kept going a little further, were all based on the results of that first investigation, which identified a smaller number of people than actually suffered from the contamination. And everything they've done, their plan of investigation was designed so as not to find out how far it has spread. When they did sampling in the community, they didn't look for all the chemicals and they looked at high levels. If you want to know how far contamination has migrated, you test for the presence of the chemical at any level because it tells you it's down there and those levels might increase over time. That's not what the Navy did. The sole purpose of the Navy's investigation was to, if they find someone who was over EPA 70 parts per trillion, they were going to promise to get them clean water. You know, They didn't say exactly how, bottled water, whatever. So they identified some of the worst contaminated private wells, but not all of them, because everyone didn't participate in that investigation. And the reason they didn't, they said, well, if I find contamination under my property, the Navy's not saying exactly what they're going to do about it. And if it's under 70, they're saying they're not going to do anything. So I get a piece of paper that says I got contamination under my property. And if I go to sell my property, I'm stuck with that my properties diminished. So their investigation was not done and offered in a way that would encourage people to participate. And it was done in a way that would not find a lot of the contamination that existed. Now understand that 70 parts per trillion, kind of the magic level that EPA says it's, you know, that's the lifetime health advisory level. That number has now been dropped down to less than one part per trillion for the chemical that's most found here on Whidbey, the PFAS. That's PFOA. That's down to one part per trillion. You know, and that's finally, that's science catching up. They're finally having to admit how how dangerous this is. Science has been trumped by politics for a long time. Now science, we've done a lot of studies and EPA is finally paying attention to them. So that one, you know, down to zero parts per trillion health advisory level, according to EPA, that reflects the latest best assessment of science. So this stuff is dangerous to smaller amounts than anyone has said. The Navy has said that anyone whose water is over the health advisory level, we will give them clean water. We will make sure they get clean water. That's when it was 70 parts per trillion. Now that number has changed. The Navy's not saying what it's going to do. We're saying they have an obligation to live up to its promise. If people are drinking water in excess of EPA's health advisory level, get them clean water. That's not being done so far. Studies were done near an installation in an Air Force base where they did blood testing. And and they found that people had a higher incidence of these PFASs than background levels, and especially children. And one of the levels was one of the PFASs that the town was not reporting for a long time in its PFHXS. That's what was found most in kids and it's linked to a bunch of health problems. And that's one of them that the people in town didn't know they were drinking. It's one of them that the people who first had uh, their wells tested by the Navy didn't know it was in their water because the Navy didn't test for it. But it was at the OLF and it was under Alt fill. So you can see that, you know, there really hasn't been transparency. Those are buzzwords being proactive, being transparent. Those are industry buzzwords that the Navy is using and the politicians and public officials who don't want to buck the Navy. So we have a problem here that hasn't been thoroughly investigated and hasn't been responded to. There is no cleanup in the community. Now on the base, they're doing all these studies to see which way groundwater flows. Nothing like that offsite, where people are.
0: Rick mentions that the Navy is testing for PFAS at 70 parts per trillion, which was the EPA's lifetime health advisory level. He also says that the advisory level was dropped to one part per trillion. However, on June 15th of 2022, the EPA released a new drinking water health advisory for PFAS that says that there are no safe levels at which people can drink water contaminated with PFAS. The EPA website says that, the updated advisory levels, which are based on new science and consider lifetime exposure, indicate that some negative health effects may occur with concentrations of PFOA or PFOS in water that are near zero.
2: If you're impacted by the water contamination on Whidbey Island, or you're concerned about the general impacts of PFOS on public health, Rick gives some ways that you can get involved in addressing the issue.
3: Like any other kind of toxic pollution problem that communities have around this country. Speaking up is, you know, you can write a letter to the editor, you can have one on one meetings with your public officials. That's not going to do it. Those are important things to do, but people need to not just speak up, they need to act, and they need to act together in groups. If that doesn't happen, they're not going to get the attention of the policymakers who can make a difference. This problem does not need to be treated like a public relations problem. And that's what's happened. People need to take action. They need to put pressure on their public officials, hold them accountable. They need to put this issue in the news in a way that really educates people about how how serious it is but people have to get organized and do something just like Sound Defense Alliance had to do to, to deal with the problems it chose to address. Here on Whidbey Island, the Whidbey Environmental Action Network is now giving attention to this problem. We're in the process of doing what the government should be doing and going out and taking samples in communities, in places that the government has overlooked and sometimes refused to sample. Anyone who wants to support that effort, contact would-be Environmental Action Network, punch into their website, contribute to that effort, and, and watch for the results.
0: Both of these issues demonstrate that, while the Navy is tasked with protecting U.S. citizens, they're violating that oath by polluting their air and their water. They're also dodging responsibility by cherry-picking data, and as both Chris and Rick warn, it is likely that the military is not doing this only in Northwest Washington. We hope that this episode was informative and that it may provide examples of community efforts that can benefit other communities across the U.S. that may be facing similar challenges. Thanks for listening.